so they're basically saying, well, the terrorism is bad. And we know that offensive content, for example, the Jillens Poston or the Charlie Hebdo cartoons um, offend the terrorists. And so to prevent the terrorists from coming at us, we want to ban the cartoons, which I think is, is to be honest with you, and I, I, I really have only used this word once to describe the conduct of a public authority or people who are in a position of, of public authority. This is cowardice. Um, it is rank, sheer, unforgivable cowardice. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adders with Issues podcast. My name is Matt Lesh, I'm the Head of Research here at the ASI. In this week's special edition, I'll be interviewing two of our recent paper authors. Later, I'll be speaking to technology business advisor and ASI fellow James Lawson about his optimistic vision for the future of artificial intelligence. But first, technology lawyer and ASI legal fellow Preston Byrne about how to restore free speech in the United Kingdom. The sun is setting on the Enlightenment in the United Kingdom, says legal fellow Preston Byrne in a new paper for the Adam Smith Institute. He calls for the UK to reform existing laws and introduce a free speech act based on the US First Amendment. Preston, let's start with the basic. Why is free speech important? Free speech is, um, you know, people often say, they say, well, it's the cornerstone of a free society. I think that's what we said actually at the beginning of the paper. We said something like, to the effect of it's fundamental to a life in a free and democratic society. Um, But the reason for that is because democratic society depends on people competing on the basis of their words and ideas rather than brute force. Right. So if you have if you introduce um, an element of force into what ideas people can and can't express, uh, what you're essentially doing is you're cutting the legs off of democracy. Democracy depends on the free and open exchange of ideas and allowing the best ideas to win and the best ideas to be uh, incorporated and enacted as law. Uh, And if you don't have freedom of speech, you don't have that. And as a consequence, you don't really have democracy uh, to the extent that you don't permit people to express themselves as they see fit. You paint a quite negative picture of the state of free speech in the UK, uh, and and you really get into the weeds. Um, We hear a lot in public debate about you know how free speech is under attack and we've lost the culture of it. Um, you, from your kind of legal background, have identified some specific pieces of legislation that really undermine free speech. Um, I was wondering if you could go through those for us and explain how the the understanding of that legislation has become more constrictive of free speech in practice. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think by way of further background, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm I'm not exactly from around here. Um, I moved to I moved to England when I was eight or Scotland uh, specifically when I was eighteen to go to university and then after that I moved down to London to go become a solicitor and I practiced law in London for the better part of ten years um, and so while I was there of course I'm an American living in in the United Kingdom um, I learned a lot about how the British system works and got to compare it with how the American system works and there were some things I liked and there were some things I didn't. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm quite a big gun guy in my private life. So, for example, if, if, you're, if you're a big gun guy, you're not going to be very happy uh, living in Europe if you want to go target shooting. Right. So that's one example. But another example was free speech. Um, and in particular, I, I, I found it kind of appalling uh, as I was you know, growing up as a lawyer and discovering that, yes, of course, most people, as they wander through day to day life, you think you have free speech, right? As long as you're not saying anything that's too outside of the boundaries of the acceptable. You know, if you're the kind of, you know, if you're an Episcopalian or something or an Anglican, 
Um, and, you know, you go to church, you go to church every Sunday, not because you believe in God, but because that's what everybody else in your village does. And therefore, it's the done thing. Right. In that universe, you, you do have freedom of speech. Right. Because the realm of possible opinion that ninety nine point nine nine eight percent of the population is going to have is protected by what the British understand uh, as freedom of speech. But as I started moving forward in my career and began looking back into the case law, uh, particularly after the Human Rights Act 1998 was enacted, um, what I saw was actually kind of scary, which was that conduct which in the United States would be completely legal, like no, unquestionably legal, uh, was unquestionably not legal in the United Kingdom. But furthermore, it was not only not legal, you know, it was not legal clearly you know, under the precedence, but only when there was a presence of an offended person, right? I've had plenty of offensive conversations with my drinking buddies and with my college buddies and with guys who are in my dinner club, just, you know, palling around, you know, being typical, you know, patriarchy stuff where you're saying offensive things in the, in the company of other men, uh, getting drunk and having, having a fun time, right? Every, who has it? Locker room talk and that sort of stuff. But in the U S that locker room talk, if you say, it's just to admit to that, <laughs> well, whatever, like I'm, I, you know, I'm a red blooded male. Like that's, that's what guys do. Like when they hang out with each other, they, they talk about stupid stuff. In the United States, if you talk about that stupid stuff in public, right, you you might have some employment consequences, um, and you know you might be you might be shamed, right, for having an offensive conversation or saying something that's a little little beyond the pale. In Britain, if you do it, you could be arrested, and that really is the key difference between the two countries: is that one country says um, the United States specifically has this om really almost impenetrable shield, legal shield over. Uh, any speech that could pertain to virtually any aspect of public discourse. Um, and so as it has some interesting consequences, which we could talk to talk about in a bit. But essentially, from, from a British standpoint, as long as you're not threatening someone, right, so that would be blackmail, threat to kill, threat to injure, or as long as you're not doing this thing called uh, incitement, direct incitement, um, which is basically, if we use a test which we call the imminent lawless action test. And direct incitement is a words or conduct or speech which uh, is directed towards the incitement or production of imminent lawless action and, not or, and is likely to give rise to or incite uh, or incite or produce such action, right? So you've got that two-pronged test. So if you can imagine a bunch of guys sitting around in you know, a room and they're just joking around with each other, oh man, I'd like to punch you in the face, right? You're, you're such a creep, I'd like to punch you in the face. Okay, you said something, you know, maybe it's kind of threatening, but in all of the context, you have a bunch of guys sitting in a basement playing Xbox, joking around with each other. That's not something which American speech law is going to be concerned with. If, however, you have a mob of people and you then have one person who is standing up against the mob or surrounded by the mob and someone says, go punch him in the face, that's the example of where you have the imminent lawless action rule kicking in where they say, hold on a second. They're directing that statement towards the incitement of imminent lawless action, as in right here, right now, lawless over there, you know, almost immediately. And it's likely to create that action. So again, if you say, listen, I think that guy on the other side of the country, he should be punched in the face uh, and he's not physically present there. There's a case called Watts versus United States where a guy in Harlem basically said, you know, if I, if, they, if Lyndon Johnson sends me to Vietnam, this was during the Vietnam war, I'm going to be the first guy to pick up a rifle. He's going to be the first guy in my sights, right? And Lyndon Johnson was the president of the United States. Threatening the president of the United States is a felony. You go to jail for, I think, 10 years for that uh, if, you, if you threaten the president of the United States. 
But in this instance, right, the Supreme, this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. They said, listen, you know, this guy, clearly this was political rhetoric. There was no rifle in his hand. The president wasn't there. It was rhetoric at a rally uh, with a bunch of other people who were opposed to the Vietnam War. This is not a, what we would call a true threat, right? So that is protected political speech. And if you say that in Britain, and or at least you compare it to what's going on in Britain, um, Britain has, of course, all these different rules, which we can jump into. You've asked me to jump into them, but I wanted to provide a little context before we did. Yeah, I think conceptually, it's it's really important to separate between what is kind of, as you're saying, broadly acceptable speech that no one really dislikes, speech that we might find repugnant and disgusting and immoral and wrong, but should nevertheless be legal because in a free society, you should be able to express ideas you dislike, and then speech that should actually be unlawful um, because it causes, you know, as you've said, um, it is inciting imminent lawless action or defamation is usually another one cited in, in, the, in that kind of category. But what I think kind of happened in the UK and, and has happened in a lot of uh, Western countries, not so much the US because it has the First Amendment, but instead in a lot of Western countries, is that we've increasingly taken a bunch of speech that we, we think is morally repugnant and we've made that unlawful speech rather than in the battle of ideas trying to combat it. Um, and that's usually something around identity. It's, it's, it's most often these days something about you know, race, gender, sexuality, or whatever else it may be. And we think we need to use the law in response to those issues. I think an interesting point, though, you make, uh, and, and maybe it is, is a good point to dive into it in, in your paper, is, is that the kind of changing social attitudes combined with the drafting of the law in the UK, um, as well as some of the legal um, precedents it developed have meant that speech that is offensive, distressing and hateful has has kind of expanded as our understanding of what might be offensive, distressing and hateful um, has expanded and therefore more speech is becoming unlawful over time just because of general changing societal attitudes, not because of change in law necessarily. Yeah, so that's this is actually weirdly, the UK, this isn't like a new thing. The UK has had this problem uh, with freedom of speech for a long time. Um, and sort of the different formulation between um, what the UK does and what the rest of the world does is based on what we would call the rights of others test, right? So that the first time I remember seeing that was in criminal law when I was a 1L at SOAS. And, um, and there's a case called Brutus and Cousins where a bunch of protesters walked onto the court at Wimbledon and threw out a bunch of pamphlets and kicked up a, a stink and were escorted off the court. They were arrested, tried, convicted, fined of a violation of the Public Order Act 1936, Section 5, which was the predecessor to the Public Order Act 1986, Section 5, which we'll talk about, on the basis that, um, here we go, so conduct which, uh, so the, 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 the general public words, whether conduct which evidences a disrespect for the rights of others is so likely to cause a resentment or give rise to protest from members insulting behavior within meaning of Section 5. So that basically, the English have always had this concept that the rights of others uh, that other people don't have a right to be insulted, or they have, excuse me, other people have a right not to be insulted, pardon me. Which effectively creates a right to censor somebody else, because if you have a right not to be insulted, you have a right to infringe on somebody else's freedom to express their opinion. Correct. And it, and it's the insult is what causes uh, the, the criminal liability to attach rather than anything else. This back in Brutus and Cousins, so that case was in 1972. So in Brutus and Cousins, that was, and that was really the first time I realized, holy, holy hell, I'm in a very different country. I'm not in Kansas anymore. Um, so Brutus and Cousins was really one of the earliest instances in modern authorities where we have this concept of you don't have a right to be offended. Uh, you don't have a right to be insulted. Um, if we then fast forward about another 30 years, to around the year 2000, 2003, 
we have this new thing called the Human Rights Act, uh, and which basically implemented a, a treaty known as the European Convention on Human Rights uh, into domestic law and created enforceable rights under domestic law. So Article 10 of the European Convention says everybody has the right uh, uh, to freedom of expression. But then Article 10 sub 2 says this right shall be subject to such limitations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as required by, you know, in a democratic society for the protection of the rights of others or public order and all these other. Free, free speech, but for speech that I don't like. Correct. So it's free speech, but uh, except to protect the rights of others. And then when we look to all of these cases under various pieces of legislation, the rights of others, no one ever actually says what the right is. Right. So you see that you read these magistrates decisions at first instance and they say, well, for the protection of the rights of others, um, one of the best cases for this is called Abdul versus DPP, uh, Abdul and DPP in, uh, in English parlance. And that was a 2011 case. Basically, there was a, a procession of troops. Uh, I don't think I think these were living rather than dead. And they were um, they were walking home after a deployment from Iraq. And of course, all the locals are very happy to see them. A bunch of fellows of uh, Middle Eastern extraction. Uh, show up and they say, you guys are baby killers, right? You're murderers. You're, you're, you're vile people who are doing blah, 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 blah. And they say all kinds of nasty things. And the magistrates in that case said, well, you know, the rights of others, people, you know, people had a right not to, not to hear that. Um, they didn't specify what the right is. You've never seen a magistrate be so bold as to say there is an affirmative right, which is enforceable between private persons or Alice and Bob. If Alice offends Bob, Bob has uh, you know, reason to call up the state. They kind of gloss over it and say, well, you know, it's just not cricket. This is not how we do things in England. You should be a little more polite in public. Um, but as a consequence of that, shifting social attitudes, um, because the insult really is the thing which determines whether the court or law enforcement is going to get involved, A, because if there's no insult and no offense, there's not going to be a report. And B, because we have this line of precedence going back to Brutus and Cousins, which say, listen, if you're insulted, you can you have a remedy. You have, you know, the proverbial, you know, Karen calling the shop manager, um, Karen and in, in inverted commas, because that's what the kid, the term the kids are all using these days. Uh, and so they'll call up the local constabulary and they'll say, listen, I'm offended by what this person said. You know, what they said was abusive because I was present and I disagreed with them and their continued expression of those ideas uh, therefore was abusive. And in the context of, of how the English courts have interpreted that word, it basically means anything which is uncomfortable. So as a consequence, you, we have found that uncomfortable ideas uh, and uncomfortable conversations, which would be completely legal if you pick your company well, become very illegal uh, if you decide to do it in the public square and you bump into the other, you know, someone who's part of the other half of the country who doesn't happen to agree with that position. And usually it's the sort of, you know, the, the left wing part of the country, as you correctly identified at the beginning of the podcast, that has learned how to weaponize being offended uh, in order to achieve their political objectives. So so with that's our background here is that we've got this very long line of cases. Um, they The idea that other people have a right not to take offense is very ingrained in English law and has been really for half a century. Um, and in order for that to stop, the only thing that really can happen under the English system. So if you're in the U.S. and some state starts going off piste and passing rules like this, we have something, we have the First Amendment, right, which has been sitting there untouched. Uh, in fact, nothing, the only thing that's happened to it is its scope has expanded over the course of the last 230 years. And so if some state goes off piste and says, we're going to do, we're going to pass this criminal syndicalism statute, uh, which which says that you can't uh, you can't advocate for armed insurrection against the state. 
uh, as in the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, which is the currently the gold standard for political speech in the United States. So in that case, they go up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, sorry, most of our precedents on this subject are 9-0, right? It's freedom of speech is one of those things that America guards very, very jealously. Um, in England, the only way you can get change is not through the courts, is not through lobbying. The only thing that will change this is an act of parliament, because that is where you know, the queen in parliament is where sovereignty rests. In terms of the, the kind of practical impact, we'll, we'll kind of get onto your reform ideas, which I think are very important. Um, if you look at, uh, you kind of point out in your paper to a bunch of kind of specific pieces of legislation that are problematic. So the first one is the, the Public Order Act, um, which kind of has been used quite infamously uh, in recent history. Um, you, you you point to, in particular, the Darren Grimes case, where he was investigated, although ultimately dropped it, um, by the, the Met for uh, an interview that he had with historian David Starkey, which was bizarre in a few ways. One, the fact that he was being interviewed, Darren was being interviewed for the comments of David Starkey as a, as a publisher or as a, as a journalist, those, those comments. Uh, which I thought was quite fascinating. I think that also though, points to kind of this interesting fact that the use of this is always going to be arbitrary because the, the laws in, in terms of the, the way they're now interpreted, um, the words abusive and insulting of that act are now understood. Um, the police can really selectively choose who to investigate um, and go after. And sure, in, in Darren's case, they dropped it after there was a lot of pressure. But if the, the kind of public attitude was in the other direction, um, you could have had the result of, you know, Darren going to court and, and ending up in, in jail, potentially, because it, it's a criminal if, act. If, if the other, yeah, if the if the public mood had gone in the other direction, I have every confidence that he would have been fined under the Public Order Act. Um, and that's what we see with a lot of these public order prosecutions, is that a lot of the stuff arises from an internet mob kicking up a stink because someone said something offensive. I think one of the, the sort of prototypical example is a guy named Mark Meachin, otherwise known as Count Dankula. Uh, up in in Scotland, who made an offensive video of a, of a pug, right, doing a stupid trick and uh, you know raising his paw. That was a Nazi salute Nazi for, for all those who. Right. So I mean, it was a stupid. It was stupid. It was an extraordinary poor taste. Extraordinarily poor taste. Um, but 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 is it a crime? <laughs> but yes, actually, it is. And if that can be a crime, then we have to ask ourselves what else is capable of being of being a crime. And you say, well, that if satire in poor taste is capable of, which is not directed at any person in particular, is capable of being abusive for the purposes of the Public Order Act. Um, actually, I think they went, I think they went after him on, um, after, on the grounds of the uh, Communications Act 2003, rather than the Public Order Act. But, you know, the Public Order Act, it's virtually the same, right? The same conduct, but stated in public or written on a sign, as opposed to posted on the internet. Um, you know, is is capable of being captured here. So yes, the, the reason I'm fully confident that the only reason Darren Grimes was not arrested is because of the public outcry. Um, and if he were less popular or if he didn't have a following, um, then and some local constabulary decided, you know what, we've got a loud enough, you know, constituency here complaining to us that even that conduct similar to that, just in, the act of interviewing someone who says something offensive and continuing the conversation after they said that offensive thing uh, is is certainly capable of, of being viewed as, you know, abusive conduct uh, of some kind. 
And you also point um, to this this FOI, I think maybe perhaps from a few years ago now, that found that 400 people just in London alone had been arrested over the last five years for communicating in an offensive nature, sending an offensive message and or sending false information. So presumably we don't know about the specifics of most of those particular cases and we don't know how far they progress in the legal system. But the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of people who police are going after for, in this particular case, the Communications Act rather than um, the, the Public Order Act, but it's kind of a, a similar principle for the, the kind of comments they make online. And the police now have such extraordinary powers and, and obviously can pass that along to, to prosecution. I mean, we could, the thing is, there's so, it's so easy to see how the, the existing, so the existing statutes that we went over, well, I think now's a good time maybe to jump into them, right? So the, the paper proposed um, proposed really, I think it was five total major changes. So the first one was a reform of the Public Order Act 1986. The second was reform of the Communications Act 2003. The third was uh, reforming the Malicious Communications Act 1988. Uh, the fourth was actually just talking about the Law Commission proposals and the Hate Crime Scotland Bill. We can, we can talk about that in a bit. And the fifth was creating this overarching United Kingdom Free Speech Act, which we've proposed some language for. Um, and thank you for your helpful edits there. I realized I put British and you changed it to the United Kingdom. So, um, which was good because we didn't, didn't want to offend Northern Ireland. That's you definitely don't want to offend Northern Got to be inclusive of our free speech. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so anyway, the, those three big pieces of legislation plus the, the new ones are, are problematic. So the Public Order Act has all kinds of offenses in it where the a sort of culpable act is uttering some statement or performing some act which someone finds abusive or insulting. Um, in the case of Section 5 of the Act, which basically says that if you, it's, uh, what was it? It was, if you're engaged in uh, abusive uh, or insulting behavior within the sight of a person likely to be caused harassment, alarm, or distress thereby, um, that particular offense has been used for virtually every conduct, you know, every kind of conduct you can imagine between two people having an argument with and as long as one of them is more offended than the other, and the constable agrees that uh, the taking of offense is, is, is something which is rightly punishable by law, then that person gets hauled before a magistrate. The magistrate then is asked, is this abusive behavior? And unless they arrive at a decision which is so ridiculous that no one in their right mind could have reached it, what we call Wednesbury discretion, then if they find the defendant guilty, it's going to be upheld all the way up to the Supreme Court. So one of the best examples, I think, of this, there were two. One of them was a, a Scientology protest uh, in 2008 on, uh, I think it was Queen Victoria Street and Blackfriars, and a teenager wearing a Venetian mask, he, he was called Epic Nose Guy at the protest, got a summons from City of London Police because he was standing outside the Church of Scientology holding a sign saying Scientology is a dangerous cult. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you know, is, is you know, up to you. I certainly offer no opinion on what I think about the, the Church of Scientology, but you could say that about virtually any religion, any organization, anything. Um, and I don't think personally, you know, my sniff test, I think people should be able to say that uh, without getting arrested. And he got a summons. Um, another one, another great example is uh, in 2013, an Oxford University graduate named Beth Ann Tichborn uh, went to an event where David Cameron was speaking and basically yelled at him and said, you have blood on your hands because you have cut disability living allowance. And she was arrested for uh, causing harassment, alarm, and distress at an event where the prime minister was speaking, um, basically petitioning the government, saying to the, you know, the, the chief officer of state of the land, I disagree with you, sir. 
on this policy that you've enacted. And I think people are dying as a result. That, again, is like essential political speech. And these are just the cases we hear about. Right. So there are probably there are no doubt thousands over the last decade or so where you have people engaged in varying degrees of offensive or extreme uh, expression. The incidents we'll hear about are ones that happen to touch fame or happen to be related to various causes. So we know about the Scientology thing because that was a big global movement at the time that the anonymous movement uh, and 4chan had spearheaded. 4chan sort of spilled out into the streets. Tichborn we knew about because it was in the interest of the New Statesman to write and The Guardian to write that someone had been arrested at David Cameron protests, right? Grimes we know about because he's a podcaster. But my guess would be that there are many, many people and indications are that there are many people who get picked up for really minor stuff, who are not famous, are not really worthy of public attention. So our, our proposal was basically to say, listen, let's take the Public Order Act and remove two words. Let's remove the words abusive and remove the words insulting, which leaves the word threatening. The next bit is the Communications Act, uh, Section 127, which criminalizes the sending of a communication that is, quote, grossly offensive or of an indecent, uh, obscene or menacing character. Um, and also sending false information with the intent that uh, another person be caused annoyance, inconvenience, or needless anxiety. So that with that, we've seen, that's the, the Count Dankula offensive YouTube video. Um, there, so sending a communication that's grossly offensive. I think probably if you're sending a menacing communication, yeah, menacing is, is illegal already under English law. I don't think there's any problem with saying, listen, threats with menaces are not the sort of thing you should be sent posting online. If you post a YouTube video that uh, that uh, that threatens someone, then yeah, you should be punished for that. That's that's a, a communication that we don't want communicated. If it's indecent or obscene, I mean, come on, there are there are sketches from a bit of you know Brian Laurie from back in the day. Those are obscene. There are, there are episodes of Brass Eye. Which are which are indecent, right, or, or or you know grossly offensive, depending on how you look at it. So it's one of these statutes which is so broadly worded that it can capture virtually anything. So with that, I would say let's try to maybe revise that, and we suggest replacing it with a cyber stalking statute, where basically you look at a course of conduct rather than one-off communications. So if you have someone sending multiple repeat communications to another person. Um, you know, e emails, phone calls, that sort of thing. That I think is what the drafters probably intended there. And the third bit is the Malignous Communications Act, which basically it's uh, so it criminalizes the conveyance of communications which are indecent or grossly offensive, a threat or in, uh, information which is false or believed to be false if the sender's purpose is sending that it should cause distress or anxiety. We need to once again revise this. So I think that's absolutely necessary. And, and this idea of dealing with existing law and then and then creating also kind of a broader free speech act to ensure that there aren't um, future infringements on free speech. Um, you've identified in the paper three forthcoming infringements. I'm going to um, quickly kind of run us through why they're so important and, and why you've highlighted them. The Law Reform Commission's proposals, the online harm proposals from the government and the, the Scotland hate crime bill. Yeah, sure. So the Law Commission was the first. The Law Commission's an independent body that recommends changes to existing law. Uh, they had a comprehensive review of UK hate crime legislation. Uh, they made some proposals which were worthwhile. So they said, for example, uh, we should retain uh, bias enhancements for, for crimes like assault, murder, that kind of stuff. Um, I agree with that. I think if you, if you beat someone up uh, because of the color of their skin, that's the kind of thing where it's totally appropriate to have an enhanced penalty because of the, the public policy implications of not, uh, of not punishing that kind of conduct. 
But what they did say is they said, listen, we, we want to also uh, pass rules which make publication of blasphemous content that provokes terrorism illegal, right? So they're basically saying, well, the terrorism is bad. And we know that offensive content, for example, the Jillens Poston or the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, um, offend the terrorists. And so to prevent the terrorists from coming at us, we want to ban the cartoons, which I think is, is to be honest with you, and I, I, I really have only used this word once to describe the conduct of a public authority or people who are in a position of, of public authority. This is cowardice. Um, it is rank, sheer, unforgivable cowardice. Uh, moral cowardice, which which shouldn't be tolerated by anybody, and should be roundly rejected by Parliament and anybody else with uh, with, a, with a social conscience. Um, the second piece is the Hate Crime Public Order Scotland Bill, which more or less mirrors the Public Order Act 1986. And so we say, listen, you know, although it mirrors the Public Order Act 1986, we don't like the Public Order Act 1986. So we think that repeating it in Scotland uh, as is without the reforms is is not particularly helpful. Uh, it is worse in some respects than the Public Order Act in that it has offenses uh, where drafting offensive material with the intent that it be sent to another person um, you know, in the plain language of the statute uh, is a crime, right? So if you wrote a, a private letter in your diary with the intent that your children read it after you die, and it happens to contain some offensive thoughts which are likely to you know, give rise to racial hatred, for example, or some other uh, some stirring up, I believe, is the, uh, is the offense depending on what a prosecutor looks at when at the time that they discover the letter and what their priorities are and what they judge subjectively as being the, you know, the, the meat of the stirring up offense, it's conceivable that going through someone's diary could make out the or writing something offensive in, some, in your diary with the intention that someone finds it after you die could itself be a crime. Um, and that the fact that that offense is there and contained in that bill really tells me a lot about what the intention is of the drafters of the bill, A, and B, how much they value free speech, that they haven't picked up on that, uh, and that they haven't proposed to remove it. Um, finally, there's there's the online harms bill. So online harms is basically proposing to create a quango. Uh, for those of you who are not in the UK, a quango is kind of like a, it's a, it's a public funded, but not fully public, uh, quasi, sort of like a, an independent but publicly funded organization regulator. And the Quango would, uh, would basically create regulations uh, for content on social media platforms, which cover all kinds of stuff which already is regulated, right? So in particular, child sexual abuse material, terrorist material, um, you know, material that's, that's, that pertains to terrorism or is articles which are useful in terrorism, where there are already... Material that is all already unlawful. Correct. And that there's already a responsibility well, to remove from, from platforms. And which is already frequently removed from the platforms, not, not just because law enforcement wants it down, but because the platforms say, we don't want it up, right? They have terms of service, which basically say, we don't, we don't want to be a home for this content because it's, it's just not, you know, it's not, not A, not legal, and B, not, uh, not ethical to have it up. But the online harms regime also wants to cover what's called legal but harmful uh, behavior or content, content on the internet. Um, and to an American looking at that, we look at it and say, there's no such thing as legal but, but harmful content. If it is legal expression, right, restraining the legal expression is itself an irreparable harm. De facto making all this speech illegal online, which is in itself is ridiculous. So where the current public forum is for discussion. I mean, there's all this public concern at the moment about, and I think rightfully so from a lot of conservatives, about how speech is being censored online uh, by these social media platforms. Um, this would 
put that on steroids because they'd have an effective legal mandate to remove speech that is legal, quote unquote, legal, but harmful, which could be basically any speech anyone dislikes at any time. I mean, I think what would wind up happening is you'd have a bit of regulatory arbitrage. Uh, You'll probably have companies that uh, that stay in the U.S. and say, "Okay, UK, well, you know, you lost control of this territory 300 years ago. So, you know, Molan Lave, as they say, uh, in the United States, come and take it. Uh, and there will be companies that that comply. So I think the bigger social media companies, uh, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, will likely comply with the with the new Quango. Uh, other social media companies that are beyond the reach of the UK's jurisdiction uh, and really have no interest in, in taking money from there uh, will probably not comply. They'll probably just look at it and say, well, you know, there are 192 countries in the world and we can't comply with them all. So we're going to comply with the US. And, uh, and if anyone else has a problem with that, that's too bad. So that's... Um, that that's that I think is 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 what we're going to see actually. It won't be that if that passes, if that becomes a rule, uh, what will wind up happening is you'll just have a bifurcation of the social media ecosystems into a regulated and unregulated one, and the unregulated one will be based overseas, uh, and the regulated one will have local offices in the United Kingdom, and it won't really matter from the perspective of the government, you know, where someone's based. There is a risk that they'll put in place the power to actually, and this was kind of in the the porn laws, as we called them, the, the age verification system, where Ofcom could also have the power to block websites, but you could then use a proxy to get around it or something. I think the other reality of it is that because there's an infinite amount of material potentially in scope, um, it says that the regulator has to act in a proportional and uh, you know reasonable manner. But in practice, that just means arbitrary and selective. Um, the, the regulator will have to choose which harms it wants to focus on and and then go after those particular issues. I don't think these guys under I don't think the British government understands how many requests one of these companies gets in a minute, let alone in a day, let alone in a year. Um, it, it, they're basic the online harms proposal basically would require most companies to implement a screen up front, right? Like, so I'm submitting my Facebook post. Okay, cool. It's got to go through monitoring and got to do ideological compliance checks before we allow it up. Um, so I don't think it's workable. Um, I think the volume of posts that most people, so like your average politician will see Twitter, they'll have their feed, they'll go check on it, they follow 200 people, they'll see their posts, they'll log out, they'll do whatever. What they don't understand is that there is a deluge, right? If you want to type in any offensive term, I'm not going to name it on the podcast, you want, and you put it into Twitter's search bar and you click latest, you can see even for like the most offensive words in the English language, there are several posts per second just on one website referencing the term, right? So there is this fire hose of, of, of garbage basically flowing through these social media websites. And so the task that they're really asking to these companies to undertake is, is, is I think, really um, much, it's much greater than I think they have an appreciation for. I'm just very quickly in terms of some of the response to the paper. So the, there's been certainly a lot of buzz online. Um, you've been talking to some politicians. Um, which has all been very exciting. One issue of concern we've had that I, I think it might be good to get you to respond to is this idea that rather than using the law to win the kind of free speech debate, uh, we, we should be winning it in the culture, which I, I think is is true in some ways. Obviously, um, the law reflects the culture in a lot of ways. And if we want to protect free speech in the long run, we have to make a kind of moralistic argument for it as well as a legalistic one. Um, why then is a kind of legal response still necessary in your view? Um, to be honest, because... Um... Because the 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 fact is that at the moment, even advocating for free speech is something which is going to be called racist, right? Um, or advocating for minimal government spending is something that, and we have a footnote citing this in the paper, where basically normal government policies are beginning to get painted as being driven and motivated by bias. 
given what the law currently says, the logical endpoint to that is that we could wind up in a position where everyday normal political speech um, is being painted as being irreversibly tainted by bias and therefore is criminalized. Um, we're not far from that point at uh, at the moment. And so that that's something we need to avoid. Really, the only way to avoid it is to remove is to remove the lid of the chilling effect uh, of these censorial laws that we have on our books, which are being misused, um, which have been extended in application to speech and conduct, which the drafters never, ever in their wildest dreams when they were writing them uh, imagined uh, they would cover. I, I don't think if you, and you can see this in the cases. If you look back to Set, Lord Justice Sedley's opinion in Redmond Bay and DPP, um, the way that he spoke of free speech in that case, uh, compared to the way that the the Human Rights Act has been applied in only three or four years after that decision was handed down, is, they're so at variance with each other that it's very clear to me that the drafters of all of these laws didn't understand what they were doing and didn't understand which direction society was going in. So I think you have to, if you're going to win this fight, right, if you're going to preserve freedom of speech for future generations, what you need to do is you need to get a law on the books now, which says political speech, that is not a threat and that is not direct incitement, is out of bounds from uh, government and legal control. We're gonna allow people to express themselves in public, uh, in the spoken and written word, uh, and once you do that, I think what we'll find is there is a great flowering of speech and maybe, you know, the really the, the beginnings of uh, pushing back against this sensorial culture. Now that people who want to push back know that they're not going to get arrested when they do so. Well, thank you very much, Preston. Preston Burns report, Sense and Sensitivity, Restoring Free Speech in the United Kingdom can be accessed on adamsmith.org. Next up, Artificial Intelligence. Concerns about new technology are nothing new, James Lawson explains in his new paper from the Adam Smith Institute. He argues that while losers from artificial intelligence need to be supported, we should embrace the new technology that will boost prosperity. Uh, James joins us for this part of the podcast. So James, I was going to just start by explaining to people what is artificial intelligence? Yes, Matthew. So it's, it's, it's a very good question. And it's one that despite being remarkably simple, people still struggle to answer. I think my definition, which is is a, is a useful and practical definition, um, is that artificial intelligence is basically a, a system of intelligence that is artificial in nature, that has been produced by human beings. So effectively, a machine that is able to show some form of intelligence. Quite often, people get into huge debates about this topic, and they think that AI has to be something much more, that it has to represent what's sometimes known as artificial general intelligence, or has to replicate all of the, the, the elements of a, of a human mind. But in, 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 in reality, most people, when they're talking about AI, aren't talking about that level of intelligence. They're just talking about a machine, a computer, that is able to replicate some form of intelligence. And so at a very basic level, you could even argue with this definition that a, a calculator is a form of artificial intelligence. Um, and so we come across what's sometimes known as the, the, the AI problem, where um, over time, as innovation progresses, as what we're able to do with machines and software and programs advances, that previous advances are seen as fairly trivial and are no longer seen as, a, as AI. And so a lot of what people are talking about today when they talk about AI, when they talk about artificial intelligence, is specifically machine learning. Because machine learning is a branch of, of AI research and a, and a branch of AI applications that has advanced significantly 
over over recent years uh, in two ways one in in terms of business adoption so actually being used out there in in the real world as opposed to just in in, in academic research uh, but secondly um with the the advances in, in deep learning um, and so deep learning is able to tackle more complex problems. It's able to process more unstructured data uh, like images and, and video files and, and large amounts of text and, 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 and draw meaningful conclusions from it. Um, and so effectively what happens with machine learning and, and deep learning is we're able to tackle more complex problems than we were before because rather than just programming rules where you're, you're ultimately limited by the number of coders you have available, we're, we're able to learn from, from data. And there's a huge amount of data around us. And so uh, combined with all of the great computing power we have today, we're able to tackle problems we, we weren't in the past. We're able to make more informed decisions. We're able to make we're probably interacting with AI every day without realizing it, aren't we? You know, just like a suggestion engine on Netflix at, at the most basic level. Um, but but there's also some, I suppose, most more interesting kind of applications forthcoming. AI is probably going to be key to driverless cars, for example, because in order to process the kind of information you need to while driving, you need some AI basis. That's that's what on Matthew, and I think AI is very much it's real. It's definitely increasingly used all around us in in a huge range of applications. And quite often you just don't don't notice. And actually the best kind of applications are ones where, where you don't need to notice. You just have a really good user experience or you or you benefit from a from a great, great new service. Uh, one 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 project I worked on personally that's quite close to, to my heart um, was around anti-money laundering checks. Um, so basically enabling banks to um, to to make sure that they're doing their they know your customer and anti-money laundering checks uh, more effectively. Um, it's quite a simple example, but today in, in all big banks, they'll have a, a team that does what's called negative news analysis. When you sign up to join a bank, they will look up your details and they'll check that you haven't been involved um, in, in, in fraud. They'll check that you haven't been involved in other concerning activities that make you a high risk individual. They'll also check if you're a politically exposed person or another for other reasons at, at high risk. Um, and they do all of this manually today in, in most banks. Um, so that they'll they literally have an analyst who types your name into Google and a few other queries and uh, reads the first fifty articles and then and and, and hopes that they, they don't find anything and then and then you can be approved as a, a new banking customer. They also do this periodically if you're an existing customer just to check uh, nothing has changed and you can immediately see how automation would have a, a massive impact on improving that process, meaning that they're able to analyze way more articles, do way more thorough checks. Um, and they're able to automate about 80% of, of, of the work involved. And we saw relatively recently how existing systems aren't necessarily that successful. There was a huge data leak that, that contained a lot of information of potentially fraudulent transactions and, and showed a lot of banks were allowing some quite questionable customers, quite knowing kind of in public information that these are customers that have been associated with corruption and fraud and they were nevertheless still banking with these banks and still kind of undertaking unlawful activity. Um, though I suppose that kind of then brings us to the next question, uh, James, is, is kind of concerned that AI will take away people's jobs and, and there could be a lot of joblessness as a result. And if you think about the example you just gave about a bank that's automating the process of uh, checks um, for fraudulent activity or, or in, in your case, um, for individuals who have questionable backgrounds and associations with crime. Um, 
doesn't that automatically lead then to a potential loss of a job of someone who used to do that manually or potentially fewer jobs of, of people who, who do that manually um, and speak to this broader issue about AI, that it could automate a lot of tasks. Um, so I guess then it kind of comes down to, and, and your report does look into this in a lot of depth, about how many jobs are potentially at risk and, and then are we at risk of a kind of jobs apocalypse where no one has any work left to do? Yeah, so let's let's start with this particular case and then answer the broader question. So in this particular case, they were automating for two reasons. One, to improve the quality of the process, to reduce risk, to improve compliance, to tackle this huge problem they had in banks and the, 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 and ultimately um, stop facilitating crime and also stop receiving huge fines from regulators for, for, for having inadequate processes. But yes, in some cases, they were also uh, particularly focused on the ability to make cost savings uh, through, through automation and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that there will be will be jobs lost to tools that enable automation. Um, so what does that mean when we think about the, the the big picture? I mean, ultimately, there have been widespread concerns about the impact of AI and of automation in general on jobs uh, for for a long time. We've had similar concerns about this um, for, for for centuries. Um, and if we think about the the, the big picture. Um, ultimately, these worries are often driven by what's known as the, the Luddite fallacy. So this is the assumption that robots or AI and workers are competing for, for a fixed number of jobs in a static economy. Uh, but the reality is that the, the, the world is dynamic, that the economy is dynamic, that new opportunities pop up, um, that new jobs are created and um, that people become more productive. There are other other benefits that, that come out of this. And so um, in, in the banking example, most of these people actually ended up taking on more interesting roles where they were able to focus on more complex cases rather than, rather than being automated out of the job. Um, and if they had been completely automated out of the, out of the job, there would be other jobs created. And so really the, the emphasis shouldn't be um, so much on 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 these 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 scary stories of of mass unemployment in in my assessment, um, but really how do we deal with that displacement effect? How do we make sure that people are quickly able to find a good new job and and people aren't stuck in 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 in, in long term joblessness? Um, and when you look at the the various forecasts in this area, they they do really vary quite widely. Um, so. There's a famous paper a couple of, a couple of years ago that perhaps we can link to um, that uh, that really made waves in this area, estimating that about you know thirty to forty percent of UK work is at, is at high risk of automation. Um, what's interesting about um, that study and the ones that that follow um, is that the academics don't actually claim that this is going to lead to 30-40% job losses in, in the UK or, or elsewhere in the, in the developed world. What they're saying is these jobs are at high risk of automation, but without a comment on how long it will take for them to be automated typically, um, and without um, reflecting the fact that the economy is dynamic and other jobs will be created in, in parallel and perhaps more jobs will be created in parallel than than, than, than a lost. Um, the other thing to note is with, with these studies, um, they're typically based on quite a lot of assumptions, not not assumptions we can really have time to dig into in, in, in a podcast and something people can look into the paper, um, but they're based on a lot of assumptions. If you change one or two of these, what I've I found is 
um, you can get wildly different results. And so we see some estimates that only say a, a handful of jobs will be will be lost in practice rather than uh, that 30 or 40 percent of, of work is, is at high risk. Yeah, so I think part of the difficulty here is the probably, first of all, the kind of unknown and uncertainty. Um, when someone like Andrew Yang, probably the most kind of famous proponent now of the, the theory that there's about to be mass joblessness, and he was the one of the Democratic Party's presidential candidates, um, goes around claiming there's going to be mass joblessness, it's very hard to disprove something we don't know. So we can assume, uh, and I think what your paper does quite well, James, is it tries to go back through the history and understand what's happened in the past. And that's where the kind of Luddite fantasy, uh, fallacy comes out, which is this experience that although the the Luddites went around, they were the artisans who went around smashing factory machines because they worried about their job losses. We, we have um, kind of record employment. We have more people in jobs than ever before. We've always been very good at finding new things to do. And there's, there's this constant process. It's it's almost kind of the, the Schumpkin idea that of creative destruction that there's going to be as a, as a on its way to, to um, creating higher standards of living, creating better business practices, there's always going to be job losses and always going to be job creation. Um, the, I suppose the, the challenge for someone like you, an advocate of AI, though, is to, is to try to push back into this idea that this time is different, that AI is is unique. Um, w- w- what is the, the potential that AI could actually be unique? What, what is the counter-argument here? Yeah, it's, it's a good challenge. I think every previous scare about automation they said that this time was unique right so we've, we've heard that that argument before um and the problem with it is as, as you say it, it, it's it's hard to falsify um well in future when ai hasn't automated all the jobs they'll say that the next thing is is unique and that we need to particularly worry that time i think that the, the prudent way to think about this problem is to look at the the different scenarios um and uh, effectively what will really make a difference is uh, the number of jobs that are, that are that are being automated. So how how powerful is this technology versus how flexible is is the labour market? Um, and ultimately, it's about the net impact on jobs, right? So if our economy is really dynamic and creating new jobs faster than the AI is taking away jobs, um, then the net impact is more jobs. And if it's really flexible, um, we won't see too much. We won't see any long term displacement. Either. So I think that that kind of unemployment matrix is how I how I approach the problem. I think there are different scenarios, and we should keep our, our eye on on the on the the, the worst case scenarios. I, I I don't I don't think we should be imprudent about these things. Um, but then once you, you you come up with that that matrix, you have to ask, well, what's the most likely scenario? And historically, all past technologies that have have have, have led to, to automation, all past. Uh, technological improvements have ultimately, um, I would argue, had a, had a positive uh, impact on the number of jobs. They've had a positive impact on the quality of jobs. We don't have to do some of the horrible, disgusting, dangerous things we, we used to do. Uh, we don't have child chimney sweeps anymore. Um, and I don't think anyone would argue for protecting those jobs. Um, I think we've seen that productivity has improved, that uh, salaries in real terms have improved. Um, and so, yes, the nature of work has changed o- over time. Uh, the, the UK used to have a lot more manufacturing, uh, used to have a lot more uh, farming than it does today. It used to have um, arguably at least as, as a percentage more, more manufacturing, although manufacturing is still uh, strong, in, strong in the UK. And we've moved to more of a, a services and, 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 and high tech uh, and, 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 and finance driven economy o- over the last, over the last two, 200 years. Um, what about this time being different? Um, 
I've, again, it's a very hard claim to defend against because um, it, it, you can't falsify it. But from my assessment of the capabilities that are being used today, they're still quite narrow. They're still quite basic artificial intelligence. They're taking large data sets and making predictions about whether or not you're going to default on a loan or um, making uh, predictions about whether or not a, a customer is, is, is higher risk or helping you decide uh, which song to listen to next on on, 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 on Spotify. Um, they, they don't have that wider breadth um, that, that really makes me, me worried that robots are going to take all, all of the new jobs as well. And I think those who argue that it will are overly pessimistic about human beings and our ability to adapt and our ability to be creative and probably overly optimistic about the potential from AI, perhaps because um, they haven't been as close to the challenges of actually implementing this stuff in practice where businesses really take a long time to implement new technology. And every everybody who's worked in the company and tried to do an IT program knows how hard it is in practice to actually get something working alive in a way that's expected. The underlying issue with a thesis that is unfalsifiable is that uh, you can't <laughs> argue against it very well. And in fact, from a, a good argumentation perspective, the, the burden should be on them to explain why this time is different, not on us to explain uh, the opposite. I'm also interested by the, this point about the kind of nature of, of changing jobs and changing workplaces. So when I think about the UK's manufacturing or the US's manufacturing, both are actually booming. And they're not booming because they're particularly big employers, at least in historical terms, they, they employ a lot fewer people than they used to, but they're definitely booming because they're very high tech. They, they use technology well. And that, and if you use technology well, the amount of output for each each worker is higher. And if the amount of output for each worker is higher, that, that's the definition of productivity, um, salaries go up. And the UK has had um, quite mediocre salaries for a long time. But the challenge, and, and this is a this is a consistent kind of public choice challenge in economics, is that when you have technological change, you have winners and losers. Um, this this you know thinking about my my, my favorite historical example this is by the Corn Laws. So it's pretty clear that um, tariffs on imports of food into the UK in, in the 19th century helped the aristocratic class. It helped them because it meant they could charge more for food, but it very much hurt the working and middle class um, because they could not. Um, access cheap food and it, it hurt the kind of industrial class because that, that meant they couldn't export as much. So the problem though is that, and, and it's kind of a miracle that the, the corn laws were abolished in a way because the benefits are actually um, quite dispersed while the losers are quite condensed. I think it's the same challenge with AI, which is that we could have a, a pretty strong sense from a, a relatively um, small number of people and some of them could be in the professional class and that's part of the challenge here is that some tasks that could be automated are probably kind of lower professional roles um, and the, the lower professional class has more kind of political sway and get quite loud and and they can be a vocal minority kind of pushing back against AI and doing things like calling for lots of regulation of it, calling for robot taxes as some people have said. Um, why isn't that the right response? Is it they're not a need to, to regulate AI and you know protect people's jobs. So, so I think that that that, that let's let's be honest. There, there is a need to keep a, keep an eye on what's going on with AI and where there is a very clear case of of harm to 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 to, to regulate. Um, and we do also need to keep an eye on the impact on on, on jobs. But I guess connecting this question and the last one, um, because th th some of these claims are, aren't falsifiable. I don't think we should act until we 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 really see evidence that things are, are moving in in that direction. 
Um, and otherwise, we, we should side more with, with, with innovation. Um, because ultimately, if we care about long run prosperity, if we care about um, everybody doing as well as possible, then we want a dynamic economy that grows um, as fast as possible and that makes use of advances like artificial intelligence. And in the manufacturing industry uh, that we referenced, one of the, it has one of the best AI use cases, one of my, my, my top 10 applications of AI, um, which is around predictive maintenance. So we have big complex machinery and big complex production lines, making sure that machinery doesn't break and knowing when it's going to break in advance and being able to very quickly repair it. Um, that, that's an amazingly powerful application of AI uh, a very practical one for the manufacturing industry that means that they are able to keep things running uh, more often um, and they're able to produce more. And as we said, that leads to, to, to higher productivity and, and, and higher salaries. So I think our, our, our starting point has to be that, yes, we will monitor these things and yes, we will regulate if necessary. I'm not I'm not arguing uh, for, for, for some form of anarchism, but... Um, but that you've gone soft, James. I mean, the, the libertarian in you must be screaming right now. But 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 ultimately, um, we, we then need to work out well what's what's going to be best in the in the long run, what's going to be best overall, and then mitigate um, any 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 of that displacement, any of that displacement, and mitigate any of those concerns. That's also important because if we don't address people's concerns, right, we will have this this backlash and that will be bad, bad, bad for everybody. So we, we need to put in place a, a framework that I think both facilitates innovation, facilitates entrepreneurship um, and, and enables people to make advances with AI while at the same time it addresses their, 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 their concerns by having this basic safety net. And what, one of the concepts I explore in the paper is this idea of permissionless innovation. So in government, the, the norm today is to start with the precautionary principle. Um, and the precautionary principle um, is is that we you know we shouldn't um, make an advance with with, with technology uh, because of the, the 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 potential risks, and it's very very focused on 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 those risks. Whereas with permissionless innovation, what we're what we're saying instead is let's let's start with innovation, and then if there are harms, we'll we'll intervene at, at that stage. Um, and I think that that distinction is important because ultimately AI and technology is advancing more quickly than regulators and government officials are able to keep up. And what that does is it creates a pacing problem. It creates a regulatory vacuum. And in that regulatory vacuum, it's really hard to, to innovate. Do you want to invest loads of money and, and be an innovator when you're potentially working outside the, 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 the legal norms? And then two years later, you find out that despite your, your idea seeming really, really positive and boosting people's productivity and making people's lives happier, um, Somebody in, in government takes a takes a negative view to it, and, and suddenly you, you, you're 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 regulated out of your out of your enterprise. Um, so starting with a with an environment in which you are encouraged to 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 to, to do innovation and where you are rewarded for doing so, and then only then and only if you you, you really are um, proven to do something that's actually causing harm, that's when the regulator can come in. And when they come in, they should be using cost-benefit analysis, right? They should be um, they should be weighing up both sides of the argument. They should be looking at the benefits of this new technology and 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 the cost of it at the same time, rather than unduly weighting just towards the the costs. And and I direct our listeners to the the fantastic work of Adam Thera at the Makeda Center on um, permissionless innovation. He very much developed these ideas, and he's actually a former researcher of the Adam Smith Institute as well. So, uh, may people from the ASI go on to develop 
great ideas. Um, another important part of your paper is to discuss what to do about the losers. Um, and you kind of go through a bunch of different proposals about how you deal with job loss. I think this is something that uh, we've struggled with for a long time. We, we've struggled with when it comes to trade, although I think some of the trade um, job losses are, are probably um largely related to technology as well, particularly in manufacturing in the US. There's some interesting studies suggest that 80% of job losses in manufacturing are a result of technological change, not necessarily because of trade. But it, but whatever the reason is somebody loses their job, be it trade or technology or or just because of a change in consumer preferences, uh, something as simple as that, that people no longer necessarily want the product that your business makes. How are we supposed to put someone, and you've got to think about this, I suppose, in a, in a relatively empathetic sense, which is someone who's you know spent their whole life in one particular career or, or at least a large chunk of their life in one particular career doing one particular thing, that's where their skill set is, that's what they know how to do. Um, what is it left for them to do? What what can they do? And and what role for government is there to help those individual losers? So rather than kind of stopping the technology, which we know would be more broadly harmful, um, what kind of ideas do, do we have or could we try to, to help those left behind people by technological change? Yeah, so, so my starting point here is I did a survey of I think it was about 25 different governments and how they were approaching AI issues. Um, and what I found was they all followed roughly the same blueprint, right? So they all say, we want to be leaders of AI in the world. Um, so there's that kind of slightly nationalistic start to, to, to their approach to, to AI. And that's because they, they, they recognize the, the positive benefits of AI as a technology. Uh, and and, and they, 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 they want to pledge funds for research and they'll publish an, an AI strategy. Um, and then ultimately not very much follows from that. So it's usually quite shallow. Um, it's a sort of policy that's uh, not going to withstand any 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 lobbying um if 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 there are concentrated interest groups who, who don't like the direction of travel. Um and so we then need to think, okay, more practically, how do we actually address these concerns about jobs? How do we help that person who's been been in a in a in a career for all, all of all of their life and are now are now facing uh, change and ultimately, I think it needs a, a, a joined-up package. It needs a radical program that extends across regulation, across R and D, across ultimately welfare and taxation in particular. Um, if we're if we're going to address um, those those concerns, um, and one of the things I, I recommend in, in the paper um, is that we should take a small portion, a tiny portion of, of DWP's uh, 175 billion pound budget. So let's take say one billion of that. And use that to run experiments and to, to to trial new policies that can help with sustained joblessness and can help people get back into work more 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 quickly. Um, and so some of the ones I, I particularly like in this area, things like or ideas at least I like. I don't know if they're good or not. That's why we want to run run experiments. Um, I think we need to be more humble about our, our ability to uh, determine what works well in the policy context and. Um, and 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 in a, in a very complex and dynamic economy. But one of, one of the policies I like the sound of is things like lifelong uh, learning vouchers that that um, some of the Scandinavian countries have have been looking at. Uh, it strikes me as a little strange that you kind of go through all of this compulsory education uh, from, from 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 childhood until sixteen or eighteen or twenty one in, in across the developed world. Um, most of that education for many people isn't very enjoyable. Uh, for many, it doesn't feel that relevant, and, and a lot of it doesn't feel re- that relevant in, in, in later life, um, and it's missing a lot of the professional components as well. Um, 
And then from the, you know, in, in out life, if you, if you want to learn a new skill, it's, it's not that easy. You're going to have to go uh, and, 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 and potentially do a professional qualification at significant cost. Um, and uh, there aren't that many good options available to you. And so it, it seems sensible to me that potentially um, we, 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 we divert some of those funds to be able to enable long, long-term education and allow somebody to change career path more easily by taking up a, taking up a, 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 a new a new skill um, an, another uh, policy that we could we could trial um, with, with, the, with this portion of funds is something like a universal basic income or, or, or my preferred variant of it which is the, the negative income tax um, which is effectively an extension of the, the the policy of universal credit that we have as our safety net in the UK today um, but it but it's more more generous um, and there are lots of different formulations but Ultimately, um, gives people more freedom in, in in what they do and what what their what their approach is. So, so of course, uh, Milton Friedman was the one of the original proponents of negative income tax as a way to deliver to people who had low incomes. And the basic idea is that if your income dips below a certain level, um, rather than paying tax, you'll get some money from government to to spend on on whatever you like. But that'll also go down proportionally, so that you've still got an incentive to work. Um, no matter your situation. And the most important bit of it in, in terms of practical policy impact, the reason why um, they're quite interesting as, 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 as something that we could use in this area is, and it's hard to explain this in, in a podcast where you can't see a chart, um, but effectively you avoid the, the cliff edge problem. So what happens today is if you're, um, if you're on a generous package of benefits, um, when you then move from benefits into work, you lose all of the benefits and then your salary is not that much higher. So you might only be like 10% better off. It's a huge effective marginal tax rate that you're facing, um, which disincentivizes you. Like why, why, why bother uh, going from not having to work to having to do 40 hours a week um, if you're only going to get that, that tiny, tiny gain? It's, it, the incentive is diminished. Whereas with a, a negative income tax, it's, 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 it's less of a cliff edge and there's pretty much always an incentive to work more. Yeah, I think that that fixes the, the underlying complaint a lot of people have about universal basic income beyond its you know, mammoth cost is the fact that it, if you're paying someone not to work, they, they're going to be incentivized not to work. Just before, we've got a couple minutes left, and I just wanted to kind of get into what was the quite, I think, potentially historic and, and quite important announcement this week, which is that DeepMind, Google's London-based AI offshoot, uh, have in recent days uh, taken a, a giant leap in our understanding of bio- biology. Um, they've reportedly solved the 50-year-old um, protein folding problem, uh, which is quite technically uh, complex, and I won't push you too much to uh, get into the, the deep roots of the science from it. But from what I said, it's, it's basically this idea that if you're predicting protein structure from the amino acid sequence, um, at the moment, um, Google estimates we, we have about 180 million protein sequences, but we only actually know how they develop in about 170,000 cases. And that if we can do that, that there's a potentially a huge benefit to humanity. And yeah, I think it it is it is definitely a, a historic announcement, and it's another uh, massive advance for for for, for UK AI. Uh, the the team that, that that made us this this progress is is, is a, a UK based uh, company, um, and ultimately, what it means is that we will be able to make a huge range of new discoveries in in biology uh, that that we weren't in the past. Um, I'm, I'm not a biologist, so, so I, I, I won't um, kind of, kind of uh, claim to speak with any authority about the, about the, about the impact there. But this is, this is a problem that 
uh, people have been wrangling with for, for over 50 years. Uh, people might might remember a, a few years back, if you had a, a PlayStation 3, uh, there was a, it was a protein folding project on that where you could leave your PlayStation 3 running in the background um, and it would use your computational power and, and uh, your, your energy bill uh, to, to be able to, to, to try and make make progress on on this particular problem and in, in more recent years there have been applications you can install on your on, on your, your your laptop or your desktop pc or your, or your mobile phone uh, in, in in the same, same regard um and ultimately um DeepMind, the, the company that made made advances here um hasn't need, necessarily need to rely on that but um the amount of computing power that's available today along with advances in 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 in, in, in techniques with um with complex deep learning models um, and reinforcement learning models um, means that they've been able to achieve unprecedented results. So if you if you look at the the the, the median um, modeling accuracy of the of 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 what they've achieved today, it's it's kind of twice as good as anything that's come before. Which doesn't sound that great, but ultimately, uh, what came before they were only getting scores of twenty or thirty or forty um, GDT. Which is the, the the metric they use here, um, and uh, AlphaFold two was able to get scores of of over over ninety, um, and so what that means is getting to the, the point where it's able to um, make uh, make predictions and, and, and make informed decisions about about uh, proteins uh, in in a way that wasn't possible uh, before, except using much more laborious methods. Uh, it really does highlight. For me, the importance of harnessing AI as a technology, of being able to make positive advances and not getting overly concerned, um, not being scared into radical action uh, that, that 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 lacks lacks a, a long long term thinking that, that we we really need if we want to prosper. I think this is you're absolutely right. This is extraordinary news for humankind. We've we've heard a little bit in recent history about the great stagnation that we're beyond the digital sphere, not really making any progress. I think this kind of an announcement really puts an end to that. Beyond the fact that we've got vaccines now in record time, and the the mRNA technology from that could also have big implications for future vaccines and future medical treatments. We've now got this fundamental. Um, huge progress in our kind of understanding of, of basic biology, the, the very building blocks of, of everything in humanity. So I think that the future the future is pretty bright for, for both AI, if we, as you've said, don't restrict it and, and don't hold it back and, and help the losers, but still encourage the progress, uh, we can achieve some truly great things. Thank you very much for joining the ASI's podcast, James. James Lawson's report, these are the joys you are looking for. An optimistic vision for artificial intelligence, automation, and the future of work can be accessed on the Adam Smith website at adamsmith.org. Thank you very much for listening to this bumper edition of the ASI podcast. As always, my name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please do subscribe in your chosen podcast provider. Leave us a generous rating and tune back in next week. Mm-hmm.